Seeking the Extraordinary is sponsored by The Colony Group, a national wealth and business management company that seeks the extraordinary by pursuing an unrelenting mission of providing clients with peace of mind and empowering their visions of tomorrow. To learn more about how The Colony Group manages beyond money, visit thecolonygroup.com. Welcome, fellow seekers of the extraordinary. Welcome to our shared quest. A quest not for a thing, but for an idea. A quest not for a place, but into deep, inner, unexplored regions of ourselves. A quest to understand how we can achieve our fullest potential by learning from others who have done or are doing exactly that. Extraordinary stories of overcoming anguish. Every single one of them had lost somebody from their family. I will never give up on trying to lessen that conflict. People who have stood up to challenges with true courage. Do something in life that, that you have a passion for, something that you enjoy and you find fulfilling. That's where you have your greatest success. Stories that will enlighten and inspire. What I said to him is absolutely a cliche, but the journey is more important than the end result. May we always have the courage and wisdom to learn from those who have something to teach. Join me now in Seeking the Extraordinary. I'm Michael Nathanson, your Chief Seeker of the Extraordinary. Today's guest is the first medical doctor we've had in our show. He's also a researcher and global health advocate. But if I were to leave it at that sparse description, it would be the understatement of the decade. As you might guess, especially given that he's a guest on Seeking the Extraordinary, he's much more than that. Our guest is the Associate Division Chief of Cardiology at Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C., where he also serves as Director of Echocardiography, a professor of pediatrics at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences, Our guest has made and lives a relentless commitment to global health that includes extensive clinical outreach, practicing worldwide telemedicine, and multiple research publications in the area of rheumatic heart disease, one of his greatest areas of interest. RHD remains the most common cause of cardiovascular morbidity and mortality in children and young adults in the world today, despite being preventable. It's also the fifth deadliest infectious disease in the world. But our guest is doing something about it. Actually, he's doing a lot about it. He's collaborated extensively with the medical team at the Uganda Heart Institute at Malago Hospital in Uganda, the largest public teaching hospital in Uganda, to improve the care of children with heart disease in Uganda. In fact, he's personally led over 20 medical and surgical missions to Malago Hospital since 2003, most recently with a focus on performing open-heart surgeries at the Uganda Heart Institute. He's also coordinated nine other surgical trips by teams from North America, Europe, India, and Asia. As a result of his work, nearly 1,000 children have received life-saving care Dozens of doctors and nurses have received training, and the foundation for a self-sustainable cardiac care program in East Africa has been created. Our guest has established a vast telemedicine network for interpretation of echocardiograms from over 100 locations around the world, including Uganda, Morocco, and Brazil. His 100-plus 
peer-reviewed publications include 25 publications on RHD, as well as multiple publications on other global health topics, including a manuscript on building a sustainable cardiac surgery and catheterization program in Uganda. A graduate of the University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine, he's board certified in pediatric cardiology and is a fellow of the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association. He chairs several national committees for the American Heart Association and American Board of Pediatrics and is the president of Heart Healers International, a nonprofit organization. He received the American Heart Association's Cardiovascular Disease in the Young 2018 Meritorious Achievement Award. This Lifetime Achievement Award recognized his entire body of research, education, and advocacy focused on congenital and acquired heart disease, but especially for his rheumatic heart disease research in Uganda. Please welcome the extraordinary Dr. Craig Sable. Welcome, Dr. Sable. Uh, thank you so much for including me and for that very generous introduction. I very much appreciate it and I'm humbled to be on this show and be able to share some of my experience. I could have actually gone on a lot longer in terms of your introduction. There's just so much that you've already accomplished. And I do want to get into those accomplishments. But before we do that, since this is a show about understanding extraordinary people and how it is that they do such extraordinary things, I think our audience would appreciate getting to know the person a little bit more. Tell us a little bit about yourself personally, if you wouldn't mind. I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania and spent the first 18 years of my life there. And although I haven't lived there since I left for college, it's still a big part of the fabric of who I am. It's a very hardworking place where the value of doing everything to the utmost of your ability and being dedicated to your craft is highly valued. One of my most impactful memories from childhood was in 1972. It was New Year's Eve, 1973. I was 11 years old and woke up to the news that my beloved baseball hero, Roberto Clemente, had died in a plane crash doing uh, humanitarian work in Nicaragua. And interestingly, when I went to medical school, I wrote my essay on two people that influenced me growing up. And one was Roberto Clemente. At that moment, I think was the first time I thought, I want to do something like that. The something being, what does a 10-year-old know about what they want to do when they grow up? But it stayed with me. And I always carried it in my decision-making process as I went to college and to med school and ultimately pursued a career as a pediatric cardiologist. Well, I, I've lived in Chicago and New Orleans and for most of my adult life in Washington, D.C. with my wife, Barbara, we've been together since 1989. We got married the day after I graduated medical school and began our journey in Washington, D.C. shortly thereafter. I worked at Children's National Hospital for the majority of the last 35 years, and it's been a real opportunity living in Washington, D.C. to be part of the global community. I'm, I'm sure. I love your story about Roberto Clemente. I, uh, all the research that I did on you before this program, I did not find that anywhere, and that's really interesting. It's, it's funny you mention him. Just last night, I was reading a list of 25 greatest baseball players ever, and he was not on the list. And I thought to myself, it's an outrage that he's not on the list. 
but yeah, I, I would completely agree. I was, and I won't talk about this very much more because it's not that relevant to what we're talking about. But uh, that happened exactly eight days after I was sitting at Three Rivers Stadium watching the end, the first Steeler playoff game. This rookie named Franco Harris caught this ball <laughs> off of the ground and ran into the end zone. And little did I know that 50 years later, that would be become the most famous play in NFL history. That it sort of gets to the kind of can-do attitude of what I was instilled from where I grew up, and and then unfortunately the the antithesis of some of something that great happened when Roberto Clemente lost his life trying to yeah. save others. Well, I'm going to give a shameless plug to our program for those who have not listened to all of the episodes. We have many former amazing athletes, many of them professional athletes, Olympic athletes who have done extraordinary things to influence others. And Dr. Sable's description of how he was influenced by Roberto Clemente, I would argue, is just such an example of how we can find inspiration from others that do great things. So let's get into your important work now. I want to just understand a little bit of the why. I'm starting to get that. But I read somewhere that your passion specifically around heart disease ties back to an experience you had with a family member, your grandmother. Growing up, I was incredibly close with my grandparents. My grandfather was the head of the women's shoe department at the main department store in Pittsburgh called Kaufman's. And he was kind of like the mayor of downtown Pittsburgh. And so I spent a tremendous amount of time with him and my grandmother, Ruth Eskowitz. Ruth had a heart problem that I didn't really understand when I was growing up. But in 1969, she had two of her heart valves replaced and she was always on blood thinners and never quite as healthy as she could have been. Amazingly, she lived another 20 plus years after getting those heart valves replaced. And that was one of the earlier double valve operations in the United States. But it turned out she had a heart problem called rheumatic heart disease. When she was a child in the 19 teens, she got a terrible sore throat, an infection called strep A. Everyone knows it commonly as strep throat. And the body's immune system, in its attempt to fight the strep throat, attacked her heart and created essentially irreversible heart valve damage that she eventually had to undergo heart valve replacement for. So it wasn't specifically rheumatic heart disease that stayed with me and motivated me to go into medicine. I just wanted to grow up and take care of people with heart problems like my grandmother. And so I think from an early age in high school and in college, I I was going to go to medical school and I was going to do something that involved taking care of people like my grandmother. Unfortunately, she passed away two years before I graduated medical school. So she wasn't Mm -hmm. able to see much of the success that I had. But almost everything I did early on was in some part motivated by the struggle that she went through and the hope that I could do something that would kind of honor her memory and help people that suffered like her and prevent others from suffering the way she did. It, It was somewhat ironic that 20, 30 years after she died is when I got heavily invested in rheumatic heart disease and the heart problem that she had and the understanding of the journey that the United States and other Western countries made in the mid-20th century 
in fighting rheumatic heart disease has had a great influence over how we are proceeding in the first part of the 21st century as we try to fight rheumatic heart disease in countries in, that are low and middle income. So speaking of developing countries, you had some earlier travels in the 90s to Africa, to Latin America. Was that part of the journey to get to where you are right now as well? Yes, I think my journey to become uh, a global cardiologist started early on in my career as a pediatric cardiologist in Washington. I joined the Children's National Faculty in 1997. And it occurred to me very early on that there was a huge gap between congenital heart and acquired heart disease care that is delivered to patients with resources in high-income countries and those in low- and middle-income countries. As a pediatric cardiologist, I take care of children who are born with heart defects, congenital heart defects. Those are often holes in the heart or blockages or leak or or leaky valves. And the um, and con congenital heart defects are, in, for the most case, treated only by surgery or sometimes interventional heart catheterization where we can blow balloons up or put valves in without doing open heart surgery. But in general, we need to change the plumbing. And changing the plumbing involves plugging a hole, opening a block valve, or repairing or replacing a leaky valve. And we know that in the United States, after open heart surgery for congenital heart defects, about 98% of kids survive and the long-term outcomes are pretty good. Some kids need additional surgery and other, uh, other chronic needs, but survival is expected. Only 7% of the planet has access to the type of care we take for granted in the United States. That means that kids born with simple defects that could be fixed with low chance of mortality or morbidity in the U.S. don't get fixed and die at a young age if they're born in Uganda or Latin America or some other place without access to the resources that we have. So I started my journey in Africa in the late 90s trying to explore the potential to develop systems of care that would try to address that issue. I spent some time in West Africa, but when I first visited Uganda in 2003, it became very apparent to me that there was some real potential there to change the equation. They hadn't done open heart surgery before I went there, and it took us four years from my first trip to start doing open heart surgery, but even that was a significant accomplishment. During that journey of trying to build an open heart surgery program, the problem of rheumatic heart disease became much more apparent to me. For every one kid with congenital heart disease, there were three or four with rheumatic heart disease. And all of them were beyond the opportunity to prevent the disease. The disease was in their late stages. But unlike congenital heart disease, which is a birth defect, it's difficult to prevent. Rheumatic heart disease is a preventable disease and so about six or seven years into my journey in visiting Africa, we added a program of rheumatic heart disease pre prevention to our existing program of building a sustainable heart surgery program in Uganda. Mm. So 
Let's let's address the, the subject rheumatic heart disease. And for those of us who are not medical professionals, want to learn a little bit more about it. So you mentioned earlier that what we non-medical professionals call strep throat can be, I guess, untreated strep throat can ultimately lead to having rheumatic heart disease. Could you speak a little bit more about the disease itself and uh, maybe start with what does the term rheumatic mean? So rheumatic is a terrible name. And I would argue that the name itself has led to hundreds of thousands of needless deaths because rheumatic heart disease has nothing to do with the joints and people hear it and then will understand it. So I, I think it's important to know that the name rheumatic heart disease really is stems from the middle phase of the disease, which has very little relevance to what causes it, how we can prevent it, or how we need to address the more serious aspects of it. What happens is, is that when you get a strep throat, the body develops antibodies or the immune system tries to fight the strep throat. Unfortunately, in a small number of people, maybe 5 or 10% of the population, those, the, the immune system incorrectly recognizes the heart as the same thing as the strep bacteria. And so the body develops an inflammatory process that fights the heart maybe two to three weeks after getting the strep throat. In reality, strep throat is otherwise harmless and there's no reason to treat it. But the only reason you worry about strep throat and the only reason you take your child to get a strep test and get treated for strep throat is to prevent the, consequ the consequences of the, in the heart, which is rheumatic heart disease. The first phase after the strep throat that comes with inflammation is something that's called acute rheumatic fever. An acute rheumatic fever is a constellation of clinical signs and symptoms. Most notably, it has swelling of the joint, fever, and inflammation of the heart. There's other things that can come along with it, but it's that inflammation of the joint or rheumatism that goes back centuries when this was first observed that kind of led to the name rheumatic heart disease. It really should be called strep heart or something like that. The other terrible thing that strep A causes is flesh-eating bacteria, a much better name. You hear flesh-eating bacteria, and you want to do everything you can to eradicate it, fight it, never get it. You hear yes. rheumatic heart disease, you're thinking, ah, it doesn't, I don't really understand it. I don't really know what it means. So how can I care about something I don't understand? You can understand flesh-eating bacteria really well. And I would argue if we had a similar, similarly impactful name, for rheumatic heart disease, we may get more attention. So getting back to the story of rheumatic fever, so you, you get a strep A infection, your body tries to fight it. In that attempt to fight it, it causes this inflammation. And usually that inflammation gets better over a few weeks, sometimes with treatment, sometimes without. Often cases, you don't even know you had the rheumatic fever. And then months or years later, your heart starts to develop abnormal findings, your heart valves can become leaky. And if you don't intervene, that can lead to severe heart failure and death if you don't have the necessary heart surgery. What we do know is that there's a really easy way to prevent this. And that is by preventing recurrent strep infections. 
What we do know is that the reason you get chronic heart inflammation after rheumatic fever and strep infection is that every time your body sees another exposure to strep, you get a little more inflammation. Maybe not enough to feel sick at that moment, but your heart will slowly develop worsening and worsening valve problems. And the other thing that we know from years of research in the, in the 1940s to the 1970s is that if you take penicillin either once a day or once a month, your body will never get infected by strep and your heart inflammation won't proceed. And in fact, it will regress and often go back to normal. Penicillin costs in the developing world probably a dollar a month. And so if we can give penicillin to the patients that have early rheumatic heart disease or had rheumatic fever, we can prevent them from getting the later stages of the disease. So it's a completely preventable disease. And that concept of it's preventable if only if we can get it to the right, get the prevention, which is simple penicillin, to the right place, we could completely change the landscape of this disease. I read that rheumatic heart disease affects over 40 million people globally and causes more than 300,000 deaths, which, which to me was just shocking. I am the, the, the father of, a, of a, a son who has congenital heart disease and thought I knew something about heart disease, but to, to think that this is so prevalent and I had no idea what it was, it does strike me that, that the work you're doing, much of it is probably also about education. Would you agree with that? Yes, for sure. Of the 40, of the 40 million people globally that have rheumatic heart disease, the vast majority live in countries that are lower middle income. There are pockets of higher income countries, specifically in Australia, the Aboriginal population is at risk. Even in the United States, there are areas in the Mississippi Delta that are more impoverished that have a higher rate of rheumatic heart disease. But in general, it's a disease of the poor and neglected. And that's because the initial insider of rheumatic heart disease, the strep infection is much more prevalent in areas that are impoverished and children live in very overcrowded conditions. Whereas our children may see one or two strep infections a year, the people in endemic countries that are living in poor housing and overcrowded conditions may see 10 or 20 strep infections a week. And so they just can't avoid the strep and a lot of them live in areas where there's a lot of malaria and it's confused for malaria, or they have traditional medicine healers that are doing things to try to treat the sore throat that don't involve antibiotics. And so the initial strep infection rate is so much higher. And as a result, the ongoing strep infections happen. The penicillin isn't given, not because it isn't available, but because we don't know to give it. And they develop end-stage heart disease and live in countries where access to surgery is the exception, not the rule. And on top of all that, this is all happening in countries where a lot of people just don't know about it and unfortunately don't care about it and don't understand it. We personally met with Bill Gates, not myself, but other people in my field, and his response to the problem of rheumatic heart disease is it doesn't make sense to me why would an organization like the Gates Foundation fund open heart surgery? 
when in reality, we're looking for big funders to invest in prevention. But it is a hmm. disease that we need to get people more aware of it because the, it is a huge opportunity for prevention and it is one of the greatest opportunities to use inexpensive prevention to have the impact on the most number of lives. It's also an education gap in low and middle income countries. If people don't know that when they get a sore throat and have some joint pain and fever, that they may have a problem that can be fixed with penicillin, they won't seek the appropriate diagnosis and treatment, and therefore they won't get the right medicine they need to cause prevention. There have been efforts in Costa Rica and Cuba and other countries in the last 30 or 40 years, and we've clearly shown that massive public education can change the face of this disease. And we've done some of that work in Uganda as well, where we're through social media and signs and radio ads, we're able to get people to understand that this is a real problem. One of the most important things to know about Uganda was in the 1990s, it was the first country in Sub-Saharan Africa that made a big dent in HIV, in large part because of massive public education. And that's kind of a model that we're trying to replicate in rheumatic heart disease, but it takes funding and global awareness to drive that point home. Interestingly, there are five, more, five million more people affected by rheumatic heart disease and HIV. Yeah, it, it just seemed, I, as I, I was just really fascinated about this, this entire subject because it, it does seem like it's just so pervasive and not getting enough attention. I imagine that when I cited the over 300,000 deaths, we're talking mostly children. Do adults get this or is it the kind of thing that is going to be a problem before adulthood? Rheumatic heart disease usually starts late in the first or early in the second decade of life, and deaths occur often in anywhere from late teenage years to through 20s and early 30s. Additionally, and one of the most devastating aspects of rheumatic heart disease is it is disproportionately a disease of childbearing women. We know that getting pregnant exacerbates rheumatic heart disease, and we also know that women in countries most endemic for rheumatic heart disease are often having five or six babies. And the stigmata of not being able to have children is huge. So the the combination of this disease disproportionately affecting women as they try to have babies and causing significant morbidity and mortality during pregnancy and childbirth adds to the overall impact because it affects the women before they're pregnant, while they're pregnant, and it affects them and their babies after they give birth. And so the the age range is sort of divided. I'm sorry, let me redo that. The, the mortality of rheumatic heart disease is sort of equally divided between adolescents and young adults, and the impact on young women is far greater than young men because of the physiology of pregnancy that exacerbates the heart valve disease. You, you recently published a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine. And for those who are not medical professionals, that is among the most prestigious publications you can publish in uh, regarding the use of penicillin and, uh, and arguing that penicillin, which as you noted, is widely available and inexpensive, 
is a main key to fighting the impact of rheumatic heart disease for children in developing nations. Is that something that that was what what kind of a study was this? Is it was it was it something that that involved just Uganda? How did, how did you come to this conclusion and why was there doubt about that? It seems intuitive that that penicillin, which again, I'm not a medical profession, but I remember when I had strep as a kid, I think I took penicillin. Why is that not? Why why did it? Why did you have to write a paper to establish that? When you look at opportunities to fight rheumatic heart disease, we divide it into primary, secondary, and tertiary prevention. Primary prevention would be one of two things. You would either end global poverty, which we'd all love to do, but that's somewhat of a challenge, or we would develop a group A strep vaccine, which a lot of people are working on, but because of the global prioritization of this disease or lack thereof, it hasn't gotten a lot of attention until recently. Right Mm -hmm. now, there are some advanced efforts for a vaccine, and we hope that comes soon. Tertiary prevention is doing heart surgery for patients that are end stage. There's probably about 250,000 to 300,000 patients a year that need heart surgery for rheumatic heart disease, and we're lucky if three or 4% of them get that heart surgery. Wow. Secondary prevention is this area in the middle where if you can prevent early rheumatic heart disease from becoming more severe, you could potentially prevent tens if not hundreds of thousands of deaths and even millions of people from needing heart surgery going forward. We know from studies in the the 1900s and the second half of the 20th century that penicillin was very effective against rheumatic fever. But what, was the, the, what we didn't know, because this concept of early or latent rheumatic heart disease is, is a recent phenomenon that I'll explain in a second, is whether or not penicillin has an effect in preventing patients with early rheumatic heart disease from progressing. So mm-hmm. to understand the, why we did this study, we have to understand echocardiography. Echocardiography is ultrasound of the heart. And ultrasound of the heart came around in the late 1970s, and more than anything else, probably in diagnostic cardiology, revolutionized our field. And and its specific impact on rheumatic heart disease was amazing, because what we know is that rheumatic heart disease, in many cases, when it's early, when it's preventable, is silent, meaning if you put a stethoscope on a child, you wouldn't find it. If you asked them if they were sick, you wouldn't know it. But we started doing screening studies in Uganda in 2010. My colleague, Dr. Andrea Beaton, who is now leading a lot of the work, including the New England Journal paper, including the New England Journal of Medicine paper, when she was a fellow working for me, I sent her to Uganda and she screened 5,000 kids with echo, none of whom had any abnormal findings when using a stethoscope. And we found that about 3% of them had early or late rheumatic heart disease. That's a huge number. Mm -hmm. And then we did a lot of other studies kind of validating echo screening. We transitioned from using large machines to machines that are as big as a smartphone or a tablet. And we're working on a lot of cool stuff that involves artificial intelligence with 
echo screening. But the bottom line is that we validated that echo screening detected a significant burden of rheumatic heart disease in countries all over the world. Many countries in Africa have a three, 4% prevalence. There's some countries in the South Pacific, like American Samoa, that have like an 8% prevalence. So there's a huge number of children that have early rheumatic heart disease. And, but the problem is, is that there's some overlap between kind of these very early subtle valve findings that we see with echo screening and normal. And so the global community was not ready to invest in let's give every kid with echo screen positive rheumatic heart disease a shot of penicillin once a month for their entire childhood. Entire childhood. That's a huge investment. And there are some, although very small, negative effects of penicillin in patients. For the most part, it's an incredibly safe drug. But the threshold to use ECHO as a screening test and give penicillin to everybody that is screen positive needed more science to prove that. So there are two things we did. Number one, we looked at long-term follow-up of kids that were screen positive. And about half of them normalized over time with no treatment, but half of them didn't. So that, that helped make the argument, but it still wasn't good enough. The entire world scientific community wanted what's called a randomized controlled trial. They wanted us to recruit patients with early rheumatic heart disease, give half of them penicillin, half of them not, and see what happens to their heart over two years. Well, you can imagine that's a pretty tall task. Doing a randomized controlled trial in children is hard. Doing it in a country where rheumatic heart disease is highly prevalent means we have to go to a developing country. Mm-hmm. Well, the global community looked to Dr. Beaton and myself and our collaborators in Uganda and very quickly said, there's only one place in the world that this can be done that has the combination of the research infrastructure that, and the disease burden, and that's Uganda. So we had an advisory committee from six continents say, this is where the study should be done. We also had to have a very rigorous process. So the only way to do that was to screen a lot of kids to come up with what we determined was the right number, which was about 1,000 children. So we literally screened 100,000 kids at 345 schools over a six-month period. And some of them had more severe disease. Some of them didn't want to participate. So to get the right number, we ended up screening that many kids. And we enrolled 1,000 patients, 500 in each group. A few of them were excluded for other findings. And so we started this cohort in 2018 of about 850 kids. And we followed them for over two years. And we had an adjudication panel review all the echoes in a very critical fashion. And what we found at the end of the two years was that only three kids who got penicillin progressed to more significant disease, Mm. whereas over 30 who didn't get penicillin progressed. This was highly statistically significant and proved once and for all that penicillin was protective against rheumatic heart disease progression. Two other very amazing findings from this study are number one, we delivered over 10,000 doses of penicillin and there was a less than 1% adverse reaction and only one of those was felt to be a dangerous allergic reaction, but there were no significant consequences. 
the other thing that happened during this time, if you all do the math, is that COVID happened. And we had 99% retention of our patients during COVID, which was quite, quite incredible and almost I mean, unbelievable. That wouldn't have happened in the United States, but it's a credit to our team in Uganda. And New England Journal of Medicine probably accepts less than one paper out of 10,000 that they receive. And so the fact that it got the gravitas of being accepted in New England Journal of Medicine kind of really understates how important the findings of this study are. And now we have to take the findings and figure out how we can scale them. And so that's a huge challenge, but we're working on that right now. That was an excellent explanation. And I completely understand why this is so significant and why the, the New England Journal of Medicine would have wanted this study. That is, that's just uh, very illuminating. So, so what is Heart Healers International? So I've been really fortunate to have an amazingly supportive hospital who helps fundraise and supports a lot of the research work I do and humanitarian work I do. When I started working in Uganda in 2003, there were, I was able to raise the profile of the need for heart surgery and then subsequently the need for investment in research in rheumatic heart disease. And there were a lot of people that in the medical community, some of them were vendors that made ultrasound machines or pacemakers or drug companies that gave away medication. And a lot of them just couldn't donate to a hospital or a hospital foundation. They needed a separate independent entity to be able to support the work I do. And so I worked with a friend of mine who was a lawyer and they did a lot of pro bono work. And we started a nonprofit called, originally it was called Abana, A-B-A-A-N-A, Heart Healers, which is the Ugandan word for child. But pretty quickly, someone told me, you may know what that word means, but no one else does. So we changed the name, we rebranded. And around 2012, we change the name to Heart Healers International. And so our initial focus of Heart Healers International was to kind of partner with vendors and drug companies and other organizations that could donate to the cause of heart disease in children around the world. And it expanded to kind of all other aspects of advocacy for kids with heart disease, both rheumatic and congenital heart disease in the countries we work, both in Africa and in South America. So I mean, anybody, our, our website just was redone. We have a big presence on social media and it's hearthealersinternational.org. And we're, it's a great resource for information about congenital and rheumatic heart disease and the research that we're doing. And, it's, and we have loyal donors that not only donate equipment, but people who choose to make cash donations through Heart Healers that help support the work that we're doing. Okay. And you lead Heart Healers International? I am the president of Heart Healers International, and it's kind of a passion of mine to make sure that we leave no stone unturned in our fight to kind of advocate for kids with heart disease around the world. And we have a small but mighty board of people that work together to keep this going. And, and it does help people that say, what is rheumatic heart disease? What is congenital heart disease? I can point them to the website and give them information. It's a good resource to find a lot of our papers and some of the other research projects we're working on. I think you, you said you, you referred to the year 2003 
when you were first traveling to Uganda for this purpose. I, I read somewhere, I don't remember exactly where I read it, but I read that you actually were greeted with some level of skepticism when you when you started this work in Uganda. I think that when you work in Africa and other low and middle income countries, there is always skepticism by people that are already there, that those that are visiting for what are often the most noble causes are doing this more for themselves and the people they're trying to help. And sometimes it's not even conscious or on purpose, but you, I'm, I'm coming in from a place where I have tons of technology and amazing resources. And the first natural instinct is to say, oh, I'm going to look at this place and give them what I think they need. Of course, they need a million dollar MRI machine and they need to hire 17 people to do the job that 17 people do here, as opposed to going in and just listening and thinking about how you can assimilate with them and figure out a way to work on their terms. The most important colleague that I've had early on in my journey was, is a biomedical engineer. Um, his name is Ozzy Rivera. Before I started working with Ozzy, he'd already done probably 60 or 70 medical missions. He worked in all throughout Latin America and Africa. He also worked with the National Zoo and would go and dart giraffes and hippos and develop IVs and breathing tubes and help maintain animal health. Well, taking Ozzy to Uganda was the best thing I ever did. He came on the second trip and about 25 trips after that with me. And he had this amazing ability to walk into an operating room one that at that time was just storing a bunch of boxes and think about how it could get from point A to point Z within a cost and structure system and a cultural system that was on the ground, not one that we thought about from the United States. So of course, like everybody else, I went in on day one and made a bunch of promises that I had no business keeping and they assumed they'd never see me again. Well, then I came back with Ozzy and they took me a little more seriously. And then I came back with a few other people and we started to get donations and they started to take me pretty seriously. And by 2007, we were doing the first open heart surgery ever in the country. Six days after that, that child and I were sitting across the table from the president of Uganda. And I asked him for a couple million dollars to update the OR and build a cath lab. And he said, yes. And that happened. And, but, but it all started with kind of me taking a step back and being mentored by Ozzy to understand that we have to listen and try to give them what they need and they want and not what we think they need and they want. And, and it worked. And it was the same thing with research. In 2007, 2008, we introduced the concept of research and started talking about rheumatic heart disease research. And the head of the hospital, who I'm still very good friends with, said, you're not going to experiment on our patients. You're, going to, you're just trying to publish a bunch of papers with our patients. Well, it took us a couple of years to convince them that we were, A, trying to have their own team publish papers to improve their reputation. We were doing research that was completely ethical and appropriate. And now we have about $20 million in research grants and gifts and their doctors and trainees have published hundreds of papers with us and they built a whole research infrastructure and it's brought incredible notoriety, but they were very skeptical about any type of research 
just as they were skeptical when I first walked in that I said you'd be doing heart surgery in five years. They thought I was just another guy from the, they, they call it Mzunga. That's the Ugandan semi-derogatory name for the white guy from the West. They thought it was just another Mzunga coming in to try to make promises that I couldn't keep on medical tourism. And so fortunately, 20 years later and 35 visits later, some of my best friends are there and it's really a second home for me. And I, I think that we've built up the trust, but it takes a while to build up trust. And, but once you do, you have to continue to deliver. But Uganda is not, is not the only place you've done this. My understanding is you've, you've also worked with other countries, including I read Brazil was another focus. But I also read that Brazil's different, which of course it is. It's, a, it's another country in a different place in the world. But maybe you could speak a little bit to, to your approach in Brazil and why Brazil is different in terms of how you approach this problem there. Sure. Well, Brazil is a middle-income country. And they have areas that are just as well off as the U.S. And then they have dirt poor areas, both in major urban areas and then in rural areas. In Brazil, the rate of rheumatic heart disease, while not quite as high as Uganda, is dramatically higher than the United States. But they also have access to surgery for the majority of their patients that need surgery. So there's a little more hope, but the disease has a significant burden. About 10 years ago, we were putting in a grant for Uganda and the grant organization said, can you do Brazil instead? And purely coincidentally, I was having breakfast with a colleague who asked me to explore working with his colleagues in Brazil. So we formed a partnership in Brazil that unlike Uganda was primarily based on research. They didn't need any help with me going in and building a clinical program in Brazil. They needed our help in doing echo screening and doing research and trying to build out kind of what it would look like in a middle-income country. Additionally, one of my passions is telemedicine, and they have an amazing telehealth program in Brazil. So the partnership in Brazil was really focused more on research and using telemedicine to enhance that research. And the research was around echo screening and detecting early rheumatic heart disease, but that was one of the few areas of commonality. The relationship is very different in that we're not very involved in clinical care in Brazil. But one of the most interesting side projects that came out of this was a South-South collaboration. What I mean by South-South collaboration is that there's a procedure that's done on a subset of patients with rheumatic heart disease that primarily have a blocked valve that you can fix with heart catheterization. Heart catheterization is using a big x-ray tube to guide a catheter through a groin, through the groin up into the heart. It's much less invasive than heart surgery. And sometimes you can use a balloon procedure to open up a stuck heart valve. And in both Brazil and Uganda, but not in the United States, there are tens in Uganda and Brazil, but not in the United States, there are hundreds of patients that have the type of heart valve blockage that would be amenable to a balloon. And the Ugandans were very eager to start doing this procedure, but we had no one in the U.S. that could train them. We had talked about doing this in India with some of our colleagues, but when we started working with Brazil, we realized this was a great opportunity. 
So about five years ago, we sent the person in Uganda to Brazil for two weeks to learn the procedure. And then we sent the Brazilians to Uganda to do about 20 cases. And since then, the program in Uganda has skyrocketed. So we were able to use this South-South training and education collaboration to advance care in Uganda. But what, and we just did a conference call with Brazil this morning on probably our 50th publication. The research infrastructure there is really advanced, but we've done a lot of work leveraging what we know in Brazil, in Uganda, and we all work together closely. And there are frequent collaborations between Brazil, Africa, and myself. Thank you for that. Let's get global again and think about the whole world. In 20 years, is this still going to be a problem? What's, what's your vision for how this is finally solved? You mentioned a potential vaccine for strep. You mentioned the use of penicillin. What, what's the future and when does it happen? I think when you look at what happened in the United States, the curve of rheumatic heart disease declined started in the 1930s and 1940s, about 10 years before penicillin became into widespread use. And two things happened. One was a significant reduction in poverty. And that was really the main thing that led to the decline in the United States and what has happened in some middle-income countries. So for sure, the disease tracks with living conditions. World War II, because of the effect on the global population, kind of accelerated that a little bit just because of the unfortunate global loss of life. But so when we try to think about how do we use that information to impact the disease in endemic countries in the 21st century, for sure we have some eye on kind of improved living conditions, but we have less control over that in the medical community. So the next big thing and the most impactful thing is if we can get a vaccine to the global use in the next three to five years, which I think is potentially realistic, I think we can make a major dent in the disease so that in 20 to 30 years, the disease is at a level where it is in the United States, which is present, but incredibly low. I think a vaccine could be the surrogate for what poverty um, elimination was and industrialization was almost 100 years. I think the next best opportunity is the stuff that we're doing with echo screening and early detection and that will come from our New England Journal of Medicine paper. In order to scale that, we have to, number one, make echocardiography more universally available. And there's already a lot of groups working on trying to put ultrasound in the hands of people in the middle of nowhere. That's probably not appropriate to say. There's a lot of people working on using ultrasound. There's a lot of people working on putting ultrasound in the hands of frontline healthcare providers around the world in endemic regions. There's a lot of ultrasound probes that plug into tablets and smartphones and can transmit images easily around the world for help. I work for Doctors Without Borders and look at studies every day from these machines. So the idea that we can train frontline healthcare providers to use these ultrasound machines, use telehealth to transmit these images, and now we're also working on artificial intelligence where you put the probe down with no training, it says move it a little bit, it automatically acquires the image, and then it 
gives you the answer, positive or negative, would really take it to another level. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of work on the diagnostic side. And then we've got to figure out how do we safely and effectively give penicillin to the potentially millions of people that would need it. And we're looking to figure out, does oral penicillin work as well as getting a shot once a month? And work as well means in the context that it's taken. So it, the drug can work great, but if people don't remember to take the pill every day, it's not going to work. So, so I think there's a lot of effort to try to scale the findings of the New England Journal of Medicine paper. So while I think it is an inflection point in our understanding, the implementation of that science is still three to five years away. Unfortunately, if you asked me this question 20 years ago and I said, hey, it'll be gone in 20 years, we haven't done any better. I mean, we really haven't made much progress in the last 20 years in reducing the burden of disease, but there was almost no science on this be between 1960 and 2000, and there has been an explosion in the science in the last 10 to 15 years. So I'm optimistic that we'll reap the benefits of that in the next 20 years. It does sound like there's great cause for hope now. Yeah, and I think thanks, only, thanks to your work. Thank you. I think the additional thing that we can't forget about, and it's why I got started into this, and I'm sure it's something that will be near and dear to your heart, excuse the pun, is that we still have to figure out a way to make global heart surgery more accessible and more affordable. Mm -hmm. uh, I go to Uganda and I see 30, 40 kids probably with heart problems, no more complex or less complex than your child had, and they just can't get the surgery they need. They understand it. They're killing themselves to raise money to get to India or to pay for surgery locally. But in Uganda, we do, in Uganda, they, their capacity is to do about 200 open heart surgeries a year. We're working to expand that to about 1,000. This is a country of 40 million people where the average age is 15. When you add in rheumatic heart disease, the number of children that need surgery per year in Uganda is probably about 20,000. It's about 30,000 in the United States. So it's on a country that has almost the same need as we do. I think that only 200 kids a year are getting surgery locally and maybe another 200 are going out. It's just terrible to think that so many people that could be cured are not. That, that continues to be an area that we all lose a lot of sleep over and are thinking about. And Uganda is better off than a lot of the surrounding countries. There's a billion people living in sub-Saharan Africa and a tiny percentage of them have access. So I think as we focus on poverty and a vaccine and echo kind of enabled secondary prevention with penicillin, we can't forget about the need to continue to advocate to expand access to heart surgery for children. Yeah, the statistics you just cited are completely unacceptable, and I would just say that they're outrageous in my opinion as well. And, uh, and I, I can say from experience, I know how grateful we have felt when my own son has had these surgeries and to think about the possibility of that not being available, it's just tragic. It's just tragic. Yeah. When you look at, you can look at how many lives you save and do you invest in A or B. I think it's even more broadly that non-communicable diseases cause about 60 to 70% of the global deaths. That's cancer, heart disease are the two biggest ones. They get about 3% of the research funding. And 
So it's in the United States, we hear about heart disease constantly. It's hard to think of it as a neglected disease, but globally it really is. And rheumatic heart disease is all the more complicated as it starts with an infection. As I said earlier, it has a terrible name that involves joints and it ends up as a heart problem. So we have a disease that is caused by a sore throat. It goes to the heart. It's named after a joint and no one understands it and no one wants to fund it. And so it's hard to then make the case to support it. And with congenital heart disease, I mean, most kids are dying in the first five years of life. So the years of life saved, if you add all those years up with the investment in heart surgery, actually financially compares favorably to a lot of other investment programs. If you think of it in terms of years of life lost and not in terms of absolute lives lost, you can make a really compelling argument. And if you combine efforts for rheumatic heart and congenital heart surgery, which are in all cases being done in the same place in these countries, you can further add to the argument for investment. So I think the, the biggest takeaway whenever I have these discussions are that we need to invest in all areas of prevention and treatment of heart disease in children because it's so common and it's so precious and any year of life lost of a child is one too many. Amen to that. Now I have to move into what we call the extraordinary teaching segment. And I'm now going to ask you some questions that I ask all of my guests. I like to do this because I'm always curious to hear how people like you that are truly extraordinary respond. It's a form of understanding whether there are certain commonalities among people such as yourself. So the first question I'm going to ask, I'm a little reluctant to ask it. Uh, because you've had so many accomplishments, and your accomplishments are largely around saving lives. But I'm going to ask anyway and see how you respond. What's been your most satisfying accomplishment so far? I think in the context of what you just said, to me, the most gratifying thing is the accomplishments of the people that I've mentored. Because there are people that I've trained in the United States, in Uganda, in Brazil, in other countries that have gone on to do things that I could have never done myself. And two of my former fellows in the U.S., one who I mentioned, Dr. Beaton, really has established an amazing research program in Uganda. Two of her colleagues in Uganda, Dr. Emi Okello and Dr. Who I trained, have really driven a lot of the research that's going on in Uganda. We also have people that are in medical school who work for us, who are leading our research programs. Another one of my former fellows who sadly recently passed away, his name is Kanishka Ratnayaka. He went to Uganda with me for the first time in 2006 as a fellow. He built a cath lab in Uganda and trained the Ugandans to do caths on their own. And so it's the, the accomplishments of the people that I helped train and then how they kind of came back and taught me things that, and humbled me are, is probably my most mm. gratifying experience because I'm kind of leaving that behind. My primary colleague in Uganda who I first started working with, his name is Peter Lawabi. He and I are both in our late 50s and kind of we were sitting literally on his porch having a beer, looking over the Nile River and just talking about all the people that we trained. And it's literally, you know, I, I kind of 
I kind of relish the idea of kind of feeling like a parent or a grandparent and seeing what my children have accomplished. Those of us who have financial backgrounds might call that a form of leverage. You're leveraging the work by, you know, by helping others do the same or even more of it. Uh, do you have any regrets? I, I, for me, the, the biggest regret and I am from the professional side and kind of the humanitarian side is we've gone from kind of helping maybe 5% to maybe 25% of the kids we could help. And, but it should be a hundred percent. So and I can still see the eyes and the smiling faces of a lot of the kids we left behind. And it's a terrible feeling. It motivates me every day. And it, it's a feeling of complete, it, it makes you feel like you're completely in that. Yeah, you can say you've accomplished a lot, but to that family, to that child, you really didn't come through for them. And, and a lot of those families are the ones that write me the most appreciative letters of all. And, and it, it's really hard. Even parents that have gone through heart surgery and their kids didn't make it because they were so sick and just, we were giving them a little bit of hope, but you, know, you just wish you could have gotten to them earlier. And so and that's certainly the, the regret that we have to live with every day. And, and we certainly take a lot of pride in the thousands of kids that we've helped, but we can't ever forget the ones that we didn't. I'm going to give you an, an opportunity to answer this next question because it should come in your own words, although I think I have a pretty good sense for it. But I'm going to ask anyway, do you have a personal mission? On the, the kind of the simplest answer is to say we, we want to help as many people as we can with uh, the limited time and resources that we have. I think me personally, I would love to see this kind of more firsthand. I spent a lot of time in Uganda. And at this point in my career, I've never gone for more than two weeks. So I think when the time is right, and that what I mean by right is that they have to have enough resources in place for me to be useful, both clinically and as a research mentor, I would love to do a sabbatical there and spend six or 12 months. But mm. that's more kind of a personal goal, not a kind of a, you know, a personal mission that drives me. I think obviously the, the broader mission is to see rheumatic heart disease eradicated in my lifetime. And mm-hmm. for sure, that's the, and I would love to figure out a way to tell my grandmother we did that if we could. And will that be your legacy? You, you will have been part of eliminating rheumatic heart disease? I, I think that would be a big part of the legacy and more broadly, just kind of developing a sustainable tertiary care, heart surgery and catheterization program in a place where they kind of laughed at us when we first went in and said, we can do this here. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would add to that. It's up to you to define your legacy, but I would also suggest, of course, every single person whose life you have saved directly or indirectly, that's going to be part of your legacy as well. I think when you're in the field I'm in, you kind of, you have a big ego at some level and you kind of think about it that way, but then most of the time you kind of put that aside and just in, in some, in some ways, I mean, that's my job. That's what I'm supposed to do. And mm-hmm. I think it's what's above and beyond that should be our legacy. And yeah. for sure, a big part of it is what I said earlier in the section is that the accomplishments of the people I train certainly add to that. And in some ways is the most rewarding part. What single tip could you offer that's helped you be your most extraordinary self? A tip, a habit, 
Give us something. Make it a family affair. I tell everyone that I've taken my wife, Barb, on about a third of the trips I've done. And it certainly adds stress when I'm in Uganda and it's February and I'm working hard, but it's 80 degrees out and there's four feet of snow coming down here. And on the other hand, when she's there and can experience firsthand and be part of the journey. And I know a lot of my colleagues have taken their spouses, taken their children. And I, I think that you can't be successful and be a, a more than just a job unless you can do it as a family approach. My colleague, Anne, she was pregnant with her fourth and had her three kids with her for two months in northern Uganda when we were kicking off this randomized control trial. Her husband commuted back and forth from the U.S. and uh, to Uganda, and she couldn't have gone if she didn't take her family, and it wouldn't have been as meaningful for her and her family if they didn't see it, because now they understand. And so I think, yeah, I can't, I don't, I don't take my wife into the operating room, but I take her pretty darn close, and she gets it, and she knows what it means to me, and probably more importantly, she has a major role in it as well. So I think taking your family along for the ride is the only way to kind of make this a successful professional and personal journey. That sounds like an excellent tip. How about on the advice side? What's the best advice you've ever you've ever given or you've ever received from somebody else? I think the two things I could stand out the most, my first day on pediatric medical school rotation, the senior resident came up to me and said, and albeit, I think this was Halloween and he was dressed as a clown, but he came up to me and said, more than anything else, have fun and play with the children. And so, I mean, again, I mean, I was a camp counselor a lot growing up and, and in some ways I'm a glorified camp counselor, but you got to enjoy what you do. And I got a letter from a parent today that was sort of probably a little bit abusive of me, but he said, his daughter just went through heart surgery and she just got a dog, which was really helping her out. His landlord said, you can't have a dog unless you get a letter from your doctor saying it's a support dog. It may not be a support dog, but I can emphasize with this three-year-old who loves her dog, and you got to be able to have that mindset. Yeah. So I think the second kind of equal advice I got was, or two pieces of advice I got from my former program director. His name was Arnold Einhorn. He passed away recently. This was in the early 90s. So the two things he said to me, or, the, or sorry, the, the first piece of advice he gave me was in the form of a question when I was interviewing. And it's why I came to Washington. And who knows, if he didn't ask me this question, I may not have come here and none of this may have happened. He said, and I've never been asked this before or since on an interview, he looked at me straight in the eye and he said, are you a nice person? Mm-hmm. And clearly conveying that that's the trait he valued most in the people that he trained. And then I, I came, I worked under him. And as I was graduating, he said, to be successful, get a gimmick, meaning that you've got to have something that you can say, this is what you do. This is what you're known for. This is what you own. And, and this is what you can talk about for 20 seconds in an elevator and say, this defines me. And so anyway. The, I, I love the, that. Love that. That's a great answer. Love that. Two more questions for you. What have been your biggest mistakes or learning opportunities? I think as I alluded to before, I, when I was sort of younger and naive, and I went to a few countries before Uganda, I was pretty convinced I knew everything and knew how to give them what they wanted. They just wanted kind of a shiny new vehicle to come over and, and change everything. And so 
I, I, I think the biggest mistakes I made and the biggest lessons I learned were you've got to be culturally sensitive and listen. Mm. That's, it's a little harder to do that when you have a translator than versus when you're speaking the same language. But you've got to be able to read the room and understand where people are coming from and try to kind of not kind of fall back to your worst tendencies that may be appropriate when you're in your own environment. And sometimes you got to fight in your home environment, but you have to resist that tendency and, and know how to kind of deal with the environment you're in. And that certainly took a lot of learning and maturity over the years. You've mentioned a number of people that have been important to you. So this may be a hard question to answer, but if you had to give me one or maybe two key role models or mentors, who would they be? I, mean, I kind of already talked about a lot of the influences and, and, I, and I really can't call Roberto Clemente a mentor because I never, I didn't meet him once. He signed an autographed glove for me, but, and my grandmother- Hope you still clear. have it. I probably don't. Sadly, as an aside, <laughs> When I left for college, my mom cleaned out a lot of my stuff, including like tickets to the Immaculate Reception game, tickets to Roberto Clemente's last game alive, and a bunch of 70s pirate and Steeler football and baseball oh. cards. But nonetheless, I think I still have those memories. But and clearly, my grandmother was an important mentor. Dr. Einhorn, who was my pediatric training program director, was just such a a important mentor for me, not only in the information he gave me, but also in just kind of how to present myself and kind of and, and deal with other people. And, mm-hmm. and I've had a lot of other great people along the way who taught me quite a bit about I mean, how to practice medicine. But I think a lot of my mentors are my mentees. I and mean, I think they, I, I learned as much or more from them than anyone else. Thank you so much, Dr. Sable. And for the record, I would say, based on this conversation, you most certainly are a nice person, as you just you just talked about. In fact, I think that's also an understatement. Any parting words? I, I no, I think this is really great, and I appreciate you doing this. I think there is, and in, in, we all are advocates for what we kind of do and care about the most. I'm obviously biased, but I I think this is incredibly important and one of the most one of the biggest bangs for the buck in terms of investment and potential return on investment if we can raise the profile of rheumatic heart disease prevention and global heart surgery access. And I I think there's no excuse for it to not be done. And so I'll, I'll continue fighting every chance I can. And opportunities like this are incredibly helpful. And we'd love to kind of learn how we can and for sure, once we have access to the podcast, we'd love to post it on the Heart Healers website if we can. It's totally up to you, but and try to get as many people to hear it as possible. And that is the extraordinary Dr. Craig Sable. You can learn more about and support Dr. Sable's important work at hearthealersinternational.org. And Dr. Sable, I most certainly will be making the first donation from this podcast uh, because I love the work that you're doing, and and this is very much the kind of work that I think that we should be supporting. And thank you to our sponsor, the Colony Group. 
The Colony Group is a national wealth and business management company with offices across the country that itself seeks the extraordinary as it pursues its unrelenting mission of providing clients with peace of mind and empowering their visions of tomorrow. To learn more about the Colony Group and how it manages beyond money, visit www.thecolonygroup.com. You can also follow the Colony Group on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Colony Group. For Seeking the Extraordinary, I'm Michael Nathanson. Follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter at Nathanson underscore MJ and learn more about my ongoing search for the extraordinary.